Yeah, we are. <laughs> I, I get really bored of doing the Welcome to the No Association podcast. It's just yeah. dull. Because um, I never remember what episodes. And obviously, it would only take seven seconds to go check what the last episode was. However, it still took too much effort. So, And I always think to myself, do you know what? I really need to come up with something funny. Or I'll do something, on, you know, I'll do something off the cuff. Like, ha ah, ha, funny jokes, man. And there, there isn't really much funny. I'm not that funny. So, I, You're not that funny. And I always find when I introduce our podcast if i say the episode it very much ties you in um and sometimes if like it's better not to say the episode depending on when it's getting released or i use the same intonation for every single episode which gets very boring for the listeners as well it's good to keep them on the on the toes yeah or you could just be really dull from the out like <laughs> me and then set the tone <laughs> oh no it's the half hour of bjj chat that does that for the listeners, Brian. i thought you enjoyed the whatsapp chat of bjj yeah i was just complaining about my knuckles how wrecked they all are mm. that's all unfortunately Thanks. although um the more i get into it the more i realize that they're never going to be any better so i must get used to it yeah i can't complain about something that you then go and actually probably make worse week yeah. on week on week i think the only time they're going to get better is if you stop and i don't really feel probably. like stopping so i'm probably going to have to put up with it probably but hey ho um Let's get the elephant out of the way. Yes, I have COVID. If anyone listening gives a shit. No, I wouldn't know it. It's weird. Like, obviously, everyone that I know has lost some sort of taste of smell, taste of sense of taste, sense of smell, sorry, two different things. Um, or they felt fluey, a bit rough, whatever, tickly cough. Me, nothing. Nothing. Literally nothing. You are a superhero. I, I would say that I've. So, I, the, the context was of how this all started in terms of me getting COVID is I think my child brought her from school. Not entirely sure. We'll never know. But I think so. She did complain on Friday that she felt a little bit like cold. Like, oh, daddy, I'm a bit cold. And I was like, it's boiling here. There's no way you're cold. And I touched her head and thought, you do feel a little bit warm, actually. So do you want some cow pole before bed? And she's like, no, 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 I don't want it. And then I like, right, okay, well, if you feel a bit ill, rough, then tell me and we'll give you some cow pole. And my wife had gone away for the weekend. So it's just me and the two kids anyway. So I just thought, well, I'll let her go. See if she sleeps all right. If she doesn't sleep, I'll give some cow on night time. Fine, fine and dandy. Slip through, whatever. And I didn't think much of it. Went about my business the weekend and stuff. And um, on Monday, Jenna was taking the two kids to the dentist in the evening. And she said, I better obviously do some lateral flow tests before just to make sure everyone's safe before they go to the dentist because one of the dentists will want them to. So I said, I'll just do one because I haven't done one in a while. And I did mine. And I thought, this is odd. Like... Not no, not positive yet. This is odd. The the fluid I could see obviously start to um, move up the the strip, and I was like, "There's no lines on it. That's never happened to me before." Normally, like obviously the C line, the, the negative line comes up straight away. I was like, "Hmm, never had a dud one, but maybe I'll do another one in a minute." So I put it down. I put it down. I think I put it in my pocket actually, and I went for a walk. And um, I got it out of my pocket again about ten minutes later and looked down. I thought, "Oh, the lines here now. It's fine." And uh, I then got it out of my pocket again when I got home and realised, "Huh? There's another line on here." I was like. Uh oh, <laughs> not expecting this because obviously I didn't feel rough, didn't feel anything. The only thing is, Jenna had said she felt like a bit off on that daytime, and then she said reflected a bit like actually I did feel a little bit funny on Friday as well, but didn't think too much of it because she had like obviously she did do a test on Friday because she was going away the weekend anyway, and that came back negative. So she, again, she kind of just waved it off as if it was nothing. So yeah, I thought, oh, this is weird, and I was expecting the symptoms to develop, and um, I would say at every. Every, I don't know, once every few hours, I had a bit of a sniff of my nose and then it disappeared. So I was like, oh, it's not anything at all. It's just weird. Or I might have a, like the odd feel of like, I need to clear my throat. But that's literally as bad as it got. So Lucky you. Yeah. That's I, all I will say. I, I'm not going to be one of these that go, oh, is that, that's all we've been worried about. That's why we're locked down for two years, is it? Because I guess one, this is clearly a very more mild variant than previous. But also, I figure I'm probably very much one of the lucky ones, as you say. Yes. Um, yeah. I just felt very, very, very fatigued for, for 10 days. That was me. Mm. Um, but yeah. No, I'm glad you're asymptomatic, what, which is great. What's weird, though, is like if I, if I did think I got it early, as in earlier, like Friday, I trained Sunday, felt stronger than I've probably done for ages. I had a really good <laughs> session, actually. 
and um, I wasn't sure about training Monday after I found out I was positive. No, no, train Monday morning actually. Sorry, I, did, I wasn't then sure about Tuesday when I woke up thinking, mm, not sure. I didn't didn't have a greatest night's sleep. But I think it was more Jenna constantly turning around and moving kept me awake a lot. And I thought, well, I'll just see how I feel for a bit later. If I feel like I'm at all ill, tired, or whatever, I won't because I'm not going to make myself worse just by trying to train for it. But I generally felt right, and I've had actually really good sessions all week. I haven't stopped yeah. training or anything because I've just felt so fine. So so yeah. weird very weird well like I say you're probably one of the lucky ones and I'm really pleased for you though it's good it's good that you can still train I know a few people that have had it and managed to they've got the setup at home and they have managed to carry on training because they yeah they felt fine yeah, so that's probably a key point I wasn't in a commercial gym giving everyone COVID just FYI for people that realised I do train on my own in my garage <laughs> yeah just to give context there yeah just in case anyone starts reporting me oh he broke his isolation rules I actually did break my isolation rules anyway I went out at least twice over the last week for a walk on my own yeah and I did the same when I had COVID as well because yeah. I was out with my mum who also had COVID and there was nobody else around I can't so. I fit the things like I'm not I'm not I am a bit of a stickler for the rules generally and obviously there's been times through COVID where I've been very like almost to the point where other people's breaking of rules made me a bit angry and a bit but I've had to tell myself look stop getting involved or whatever because like a lot of people I suppose but this time around and we're so far into this thing now mm. I kind of thought to myself look am I really outside of the legality issues of it am I really doing any harm in just going outside in a village like there's, there's 250 houses in my village it's not like there's a lot of people around I, I walk on country lanes no one around I don't think I even saw a person if I did obviously I just make sure I moved completely away from anyone the likelihood of them catching any outdoors is about as close to zero as you're going to get. Yeah. So I kind of figure like, is it better for my mental health and well-being and all that stuff to be able to go out? Because obviously the isolation is by far the worst symptom I've ever had. Bear in mind I didn't have any. So, you know. No, I uh, I did the same thing and I literally have the, exactly the same standpoint on it as you. Um Every... Mother, it was quite funny though every time like every time maybe we saw somebody across the road or like this over the other side run, of the field run the other way over the other side of the field with the dog my mum would just be like we've got COVID oh, no, <laughs> under don't... her breath I'm like mum I was like don't start telling them oh no no she's just funny she's just trying to be funny so right. well um, um so yeah yeah there's that out of the way um ironically Johnny's now texted today didn't he he said that yeah. he's now got COVID so yeah. It's definitely going around that thing. I know. Definitely well, Jax has gone to Holland today. <laughs> Who knew? Jax has gone to Holland today, and yesterday we were like, "Oh, what happens if you get it when you're there?" We were like, "Well, you get it when you're there. Like, you know, there's not a lot you can do." Uh, you know, you did he not have it when you had it, or no? He's not had it yet at all. Oh, interesting. So I was, um, I was with Mum over Christmas, so yeah, we. That's why we didn't end up seeing each other for about two, two and a half weeks over mm. Christmas. Um, but yeah, if he gets it on the plane and gets it when he's he's in Holland, then what can you do? What's What's interesting is, so my mum got it. So my mum tested positive the day after. She was at mine on Monday morning looking after one of my children. And mm. um, she was only there for about half an hour and then took my child home with her. And then by the time she'd come back in the afternoon, I'd obviously tested positive and was like, I think you better go home, mum, because I've just been tested positive. So she literally just got her shoes on and pretty much went. Mm. And um, almost that quick. I don't think she want to get it, if I'm honest. I was literally like, all right, see ya, bye. I said, you can stay if you want, mum, but I think you're probably better off safe going. She's like almost got a coat on already. <laughs> um <laughs> But she then tested positive the next day, whether it's like, I don't know, me giving it to her in the household or maybe one of the kids, I don't know. But Because mm. um, both my children obviously tested positive on PCR tests the following day, so she was with Molly, so it could have been her giving it to her all morning. But anyway, by the by, um, my dad still hasn't got it. Bear in mind, that was last yeah. Tuesday, and he's still testing negative even up till today. So it's so strange, really. It's so bizarre. A couple of my clients, both their kids had it. Um, and obviously they were like, well, you know they're both our children we're not going to leave them in their rooms they're like eight and eleven so they were like cuddling on the sofa and stuff and parents mum and dad still didn't get it at all yeah so yeah it's weird anyway anyway nine minutes of covid chat i'm sure people yeah. are very very interested in that um what's been what else has been going on in your life oh that's a very big question brett um my life what's been going on you could you can do obviously personal life you could do training nutrition update you could do anything that you think would be mildly interesting to people mildly interesting hmm whatever it's going to be it's going to be more interesting than the nine minutes of covid chat which is yeah that's true um i am back squatting again for the first time in back nine months back squatting back squatting because back squatting back squatting because tone, um, tone matters 
Yes, uh, I am back to squatting with a barbell on my back um, for the first time in nine months, which is quite nice. So um, had a knee issue, so been reintroducing those um, back in, which is nice. Wh- what have you done to rehab your knee issue of interest? Um, eccentric loading um, through single leg movements to load the um, patella tendon, um, which, to be honest, out of all the rehab I've ever had to do for an injury, I've done this one more than anything. I still haven't done it as much as mm. the physio has advised me to do, but I have been doing it when I remember. Um, and so far, so good. I mean, only done two sessions so far, so doing once a week. Um do you do you follow knee over toes guy? Knees over toes guy, yes. Yeah, because um, I obviously don't know a lot about his program and the stuff he does, or him really, or about the concept of PT in general. Um, however, a few people that I trust and do know a bit about it have said that they've used stuff that he's done before, and I think quite rates him. So mm. I always think, oh well. You know, on the word of someone else, perhaps he's worth a follow and use some of his stuff. I quite like, he seemed to do a lot of like backwards running or backwards sled pulls and a lot of that type of stuff. Yeah, he does. Which... He does a lot of that kind of stuff. But he does do what I like. He does do a lot of um, ankle mobility as well, which is very key to back squatting. Um, yeah, he does or, a lot or of... squatting in general. Let's squatting in general. Which, yeah, but people don't think that your ankles have a... Like, people think it's all knees or hips, but I, the ankles... I would it, say... my Sorry to cut you off there, but I would say in my own experience of working with any individuals on the training front, when it comes to squatting, ankle flexion or lack of lack of dorsiflexion is probably the number one limiter for most people i completely agree from a professional perspective but for an untrained individual when you say oh it's probably your ankles they're like what like yeah yeah yeah, it's your poor ankle mobility they're like oh i was agreeing yeah i was was kind of like agreeing with your point in that like it's strange that people wouldn't it's as in that's usually the biggest thing and i wouldn't i say most people wouldn't believe it as in that'd be a bit of a shock to them yeah, I um, didn't when I first like when I first started realizing that. Hmm. So you're telling me that my ability to flex on my ankles is stopping me squatting. How yeah. does that work? And then you, when yeah. you when you start to look at how the way um, kind of lever and moment arms work, and obviously you, you often see that like Meccano looking model that sort of a lot of people get, where it's got fixed points between obviously the, your ankles and your hips, and obviously the, the way the lengths of the lever arms and the moment arms change the way someone's position is to squatting. You start to see. Ah, now I get it. I know I get it why I nearly fall over when I'm squatting because I'm leaning so far forward. Yeah, yeah. And they, everyone always comes and they're like, oh, I've got tight hips. That's why I can't get, that's why I can't squat low. And I was tight like, tight hamstrings. I've got tight, tight hamstrings. hamstrings. Yeah. It's probably a multifactorial, um, but ankles but, are definitely overlooked, I would say, yeah. by the untrained individual. Yeah. Um, so that, the hamstring ones always makes me laugh because it's kind of like your hamstrings don't really change length much when you squat. So I'm not sure how the tightness is really stopping you squatting, but. Mm. You know, probably lazy glutes or yeah. unable to activate your, your, your glutes, glutes are asleep. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, so although yeah, I'm back squatting, you're back squatting. Sorry, go on. I was no, the, the lazy glutes comments are funny one because that's another one where I I think I asked um, who do I ask? Who, who do we have in the podcast? I asked. I asked whether it was a thing. Basically, mm. um, I think it might have been Hannah actually. But anyway, by the way. Um, and because uh, I was interested because I actually had a pain in my inside of my groin uh, a year or so ago, maybe a bit less. And uh, the PT that or the physio that I saw, um, when I say physiotherapist, not as in personal trainer. Um, so the PT that I saw, the American PT, uh, they d- diagnosed that I had some sort of weak left glute or something that was causing some sort of like almost a hip impingement. Obviously, mm-hmm. causing my groin to pain. And to be fair, the treatment they gave me did actually make quite a big difference. So I kind of figure like, yeah, maybe there was something to it. But the whole like weak glute, lazy glute, glute activation type exercises, a bit like, mm. critically, I was thinking, I'm not sure this is right, but I don't know enough about it to debunk it, really. Um, I think people just, um, maybe activation is the wrong word. I think people struggle to utilize them um or to actually feel them or actually to connect the the mind to muscle connection in the glutes unless they have been 
stimulated to start with uh, or unless they are used to specific movement patterns that will actually um, get them involved. But yeah. again, everyone's different. And like Andy and I talked about this on our podcast last week or this week, actually, the one that's been also being re- released tomorrow. Um, everybody is really, really different. And if you can't engage your glutes when you're doing the squat, doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it wrong or it's going to limit you that's just your squat mm. like i also think like your glutes can't not work exactly it's like if if they were asleep and they didn't work you'd fall over or you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to squat yeah exactly like and you're you kind of become a product of it's our nature versus nurture thing. If you if you've got a really sedentary job and you spend most of the time sat on your bum, like it is going to be harder to actually utilize them and engage them because you are sat on them a lot of the time. It doesn't mean they don't work. It just means that you, you know, you might not be able to harness their power as much. But again, it doesn't mean you need fixing. It doesn't mean you need shitload of activation exercises to start with. Like I saw this guy in the gym the other day, and I swear he spent just as long warming up and cooling down in his stretching routine as he actually did on his entire workout. And I was a bit like, "Mm, it's, I question whether that's actually necessary. But anyway, um, the whole point of the conversation was I am back squatting again. And it's very, very nice to do in my own training. Um, Haven't really lost that much strength, just key is now just going in nice and steady and not overdoing it because i don't want to just suddenly think yeah you can squat again let's do three squat sessions a week and all of a sudden the knee's fucked so um yeah just back doing that again which is quite fun in my own training always nice to switch up yeah good good are you um straight into back squatting or any um what's the word i'm on the blank blank on the word uh bring the complexity down did you start with anything oh what like a goblet squat yeah or anything no i have actually gone straight back into back squatting um do you know why though because i have kept doing leg training while i haven't been able to squat and i have been doing more like hip thrusts um i can do i could do split squats as long as my knee didn't go into any kind of excessive flexion so i have been doing a lot of single leg stuff a lot of hip thrusts a lot of leg press with my feet very high we've got like a vertical plate loaded leg press at our gym so could have the feet very high so there wasn't any excessive knee flexion or like real quad quad dominant movement so i have kept doing a lot of like glute focused leg work Um, a lot of RDLs as well and I think that's quite um, I think that's been quite key in why I haven't lost a lot of strength um, that I have still done what I I was able to do Um, you know keep going like working the hip thrust in different rep ranges so it's been doing some heavy sets of eight been doing high sets of 15 same with split squats Um, yeah RDLs been going quite heavy on them so again like it's it's that transference of power from with utilizing the same muscles so um yeah it's been it's been all right so I just went straight back into back squatting again again just not overdoing it in terms of um frequency Mm. I think um it's always nice to go back to something that obviously one you clearly enjoy doing but obviously when you have a time like a you know layoff or time off doing something it always just makes you feel excited about getting back into it I guess there's there's a lesson there in that doesn't always have to be the inj- for injury, but obviously I guess some variety can spice mm-hmm. up your training quite often. If you feel a bit like, oh, my training's a bit dull now, I'm getting a bit bored of stuff, actually just adding some variety can help with, well, not only motivation and consistency, but also perhaps even going over some plateaus because, you know, you're trying to, pl- you've plateaued on something and you can't seem to break this plateau. Sometimes even just a bit of variety, a different movement pattern, albeit nothing physiological should be the reason why you might break it. They're just they added motivation or something different can sometimes just be enough just to keep going and you know find yourself get through it yeah definitely i can really agree like i'm actually really excited tomorrow to do my leg day but that's another thing that i've had to realize is as my week goes on actually structuring my training around and structuring my sessions around how i generally feel as the week goes on um, so I do four sessions a week, all usually Monday to Friday, maybe one on Saturday. But because I work in a gym and I don't work Saturdays, I like to not have to train Saturday because obviously it's like going into the office on a Saturday when you don't need to. Um, so like I have to do my squat day, my leg day on a Monday. Like I'm the most psyched for it. I've had the weekend off. My body's usually the most recovered and rested. It's a lot of volume. I go quite heavy. Um 
and then yeah the the session towards the end like my last session of the week usually Thursday or Friday that has to be an upper body session that I know I'm very competent at that doesn't take a lot of thought that I don't necessarily want to have to try and push the numbers on but that just gives me quite a good burn Uh, it's leaning into how you work with your own training as well Mm. there's a fun fact uh and an insight for some people perhaps but I have a five day a week split mm-hmm. um yeah five day a week split and uh I usually don't train uh on a Wednesday and a Saturday mm-hmm. but the insight is that I usually have a mixed body part day so it's there isn't a uh, specific muscle group day in terms of like upper lower or push pull or whatever and uh, to be honest I usually just pick an exercise of stuff which one has to have a bit of a strategy around where I do something in a week to fit in with things like BGJ and stuff and I don't kill myself in certainly legs like hamstring stuff basically I struggle with doing hamstring stuff either on the day of or the day before of um for BJJ so I have to then kind of partition it a little bit away from those those times but the rest the rest of the muscle groups I'm kind of reasonably okay with but basically I just do it based on feel so I don't my my days I might do one exercise from one day and another exercise from another day and then another exercise from a completely different day just depending on how I feel that week mm. there's almost like no structure sometimes to mine it's just like I've got a list of however many exercises however many sets of each exercise blah 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 to do and I just get them done in the week yeah literally as long as I the, just tick them off as long as it's hit at the end of the week that's fine mm. it gives like you say a lot more it's nice that you can be that kind of exploratory with your training as well though um some people don't necessarily have that have that luxury. No, this is a, this actually leads on to a good conversation I had with a client of mine about training, where I kind of said along the lines of like the re- <laughs> yeah, perhaps just I'll wind it back a sec. So basically, having a conversation around training and kind of like how do you consistently keep going over time, blah blah blah. How do you keep the motivation and stuff? And I said, to be honest, you get to a point I think where like having a set goal sometimes is obviously not motivating at all. I guess the whole intrinsic versus extrinsic type stuff and obviously the process versus um, end goal type conversations could come into play. But I think like I found my own personal training, which I find with a lot of other people, you kind of set off on a goal of I want to do X, Y, Z like in your training. And then after a while when you realize you're never going to do X, Y, Z, you then come to a crossroads where you either stop doing it, what a lot of people do, or if you go the other way, you will continue training, but you just care less about it. So you just carry mm. on doing it. And I guess obviously that's where I am. So I can now be a lot more exploratory with stuff because I don't care about the outcome. Like it doesn't matter to me if I don't get the best gains in the world for a few weeks or a few months or whatever, because what difference does it really make to me? And like, I make exactly the same place, mate. Exactly mm. the same place. But that, that's what's interesting is that the conversation over the client is how many people are like that, get to that point. Yeah. my um, One of my clients said to me, the other week um we, we joke about it now she was like when does it end like when when does training when when do you when does it just stop? never and i was like never it's like what we're talking about with andy isn't it when andy was on the pod um it's you just and and we i read a really good post as well from chloe madeley which andy and i reference in our podcast tomorrow as well about the different things as you go along your training journey. Like sometimes you have a goal, sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's aesthetics, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes you care about the numbers. Sometimes you just need to buy a new pair of trainers because you're struggling to feel motivated and you just want to go to the gym so you can wear your new pair of leggings. Like, and that is it for me sometimes. And it's and that's all right as well. It's like mm. it's these things peak and drop. Um and when you do relax and sometimes when you don't have a goal that's when you can get a little bit more exploratory with your training sometimes I find as well when you don't have a goal that's when you actually start to give a shit and make a little bit more progress because almost the pressure's off as well um so yeah Mm. it is is interesting I guess uh relates slightly into what you want to talk about today in terms of having a goal not having a goal um in that I would like to muse around the idea of I guess in the uh, intuitive eating slash anti-diet type realm, one of the uh, premises that, that kind of is often pushed out to people or advised to people, um, more from a, a, a position of trying to fix relationships or heal relationships with food, that type of thing, or I guess you could even put go right down the, to the true intuitive into eating the aspect of kind of clinical um, nutrition and kind of help support people with eating disorders and stuff, which obviously isn't us, but I guess obviously the types of people that will talk about it, it might be in that realm. Um, but this idea of un- unconditional permission to eat. Now, 
I'll just preface it in that I guess that doesn't mean that that thing is only for clinical nutrition because actually I think we'd probably both agree and that is something that's probably useful for a lot of people and that perhaps everyone almost everyone like in fact I can't think of anyone that I wouldn't ever say that to um actually in, in just that immediate tiny reflection there so it's, it's an interesting one though because I guess it does bring up some some avenues to talk through or some ideas and like I said musings so I'm interested in your thoughts uh about unconditional permission to eat in general yeah yeah i don't have a starting point really other than that so i guess you can take mm. it however you want i mean i've got yeah. some ideas of what my, my thoughts of what the, of, of the premise in general whether i think it's good bad some of the things people need to consider that type of stuff but i guess the yeah. let's let the conversation flow down a nice fizzy waterfall <laughs> um i so i first came across this concept a couple of years ago um and again like it was the kind of growth of that anti-diet movement um learn about the book so unconditional permission to eat in itself is like it's part of it's part of intuitive eating it's part of it, yeah it is framework. one of the 10 principles or 10 one parts of the, of the framework yeah yeah um i talk about it to my clients as well i try and practice it myself um, I think it links in really well with a lot of other kind of mindful eating techniques. Um, I think it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, I practice unconditional permission to eat. I can eat whatever I want whenever I want it. I think there's a lot of people that probably would like to think that they do, but they actually don't. And I would count myself as one of them as well. I still have issues with overconsumption of food, particularly when I'm feeling certain emotions or around certain people and peer pressure. And I think you can't just start practicing unconditional permission to eat and all of a sudden you don't want to overconsume anymore or you suddenly never eat past the point of fullness or you never have um, an emotional reaction around food, a, a reaction around food because of your emotions or something like that. I said, I think the key word with unconditional permission to eat is that especially if you've grown up with diet rules or rules around food or have participated in multiple diets, this is something that you will have to practice for the rest of your life. Um, and that's how I um, kind of pitch it with a lot of my clients. I Whether I have clients that want um, fat, fat, in fact, it, I hammer at home a little bit more of my fat loss clients, but whether it's fat loss, muscle building or whatever, it is something that I get them to try and practice from a very early, early stage in their journey with me, um, particularly more so if they are going for fat loss. Because, again, whilst there are principles of fat loss that very, very rarely change, um, if people have been in restrictive mindsets that have caused them to overconsume and have feelings of guilt or shame, I think it's an important concept to get across early on and for them to get their heads around it. Because um, it, it can be really challenging for some people. Hmm. I, think, I guess like the unconditional permission to eat for a lot of people just sounds a bit like greediness. Just, you know, like that's never going to work. Like surely everyone's, that's why everyone's overweight because they've got unconditional permission to eat. Mm. And I think that's sometimes the worry. Um, I, the, the, the opposite view for a lot of people, and certainly I found this was very much my first journey into the fitness space and fitness sphere and helping people. The, the idea was more around like controlling your environment and not kind of permission to eat as in like, don't, oh yeah, you must not keep your trigger foods in the house or you must, because I, I, and I'd be fair, I've got, a, there's a book called Slim by Design by Brian mm. Wansick and Brian Wansick has done a lot of research over the years in kind of this type of area, like why people are thin and what, what the habits thin people have. Um, he's done like, I, I can't remember the exact premise of it, but he's done like the forever expanding soup bowl experiment. I don't know if you've ever read that study. But yeah. Obviously, that. You know, soup keeps filling up from the bottom and people overeat when the bowls keep filling up. Yeah. Um, or different colored foods, size of plates, he's done loads of research and this type of stuff as to what, like trying to find out why people basically overeat compared to other people. Um, and a lot of it really makes logical sense to me. Like you read it and you hear some of his work and the type of work that other people done in that same sort of area. And you're kind of like, yeah i get it that's just but then there's bits of it i think that actually becomes a bit of a logical fallacy over time i know or i think i'm pretty sure reasonably recently last year or two some of his stuff's been a bit debunked or found out that either he made up some data or there's been questions about some of the stuff he's done anyway i can't that that's probably very slanderous libel can't remember which way around it is um 
And I'm probably I sue gonna get, you. I'm going to get sued now, probably. But um, no, I don't. I don't think that's uh, that's uh, new news to anyone. I'm sure if you Google it, there'd be some stuff somewhere. But I, I, I don't know any details, so I might be even slightly wrong on it. But point being, I think it's been questioned now whether some of the stuff is legitimate. And I guess the point I wanted to make is that I have similar ideas now. In that, where I used to think, yeah, it's all about controlling your environment. It's like not buying food. It's not buying multi packs, uh, multi packs of stuff or big. Like you know, if you want chocolate, have little bars in the house. You're gonna get a little bar. Or make it difficult, you know, create barriers. Basically, stop it as difficult to overeat as possible. I'm kind of a bit more on the other view now. Well, actually, the, uncom- the the idea of unconditional permission to eat fits in along the lines of the research around restrictive versus non-restrictive or flexible, like rigid versus flexible type dieting, where the more restrictive you are, the more likely you are to kind of have a poor relationship with food and potentially overeat on stuff because you create this forbidden fruit type effect on stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think the unconditional permission to eat obviously takes away a lot of that idea of this food is special therefore and, and yeah for people that aren't aware or that don't know i guess a, a clinician that is using that principle specifically to try and help someone that has a poor relationship with food or a you know an actual um clinical issue they would essentially get that individual to overconsume that or not overconsume they would get them to consume that food regularly consistently for a long period of time until that food becomes a bit like unspecial which is a bit alien to people because kind of like someone kind of came to you and said oh donuts are my trigger food like if i have a donut i can eat 10 of them i can't stop you would think uh, an individual wouldn't be saying okay i'll tell you what go out and buy a dozen and i want you to sit there and i want you to have a donut every single day and if you want to you can have two but just continue every single day and i want you to do that for the next 30 days say everything that's not a very good practice surely but i guess the idea is that over time and it you know again this perhaps does feel like at least makes logical sense you probably will get a bit bored of a donut after a while and no longer become that trigger of special food. I think in practice I do align with that and I think that's probably mm. where, yeah, I think that's probably where I feel like it has some utility for even us not working with clinical people. There will always be people we work with that kind of have this idea that they have a, a bad food in air quotes or, oh, I can't eat that food because that's the, that's a you know, it's a trigger food, not even necessarily the word trigger, but that's, oh, that's one of my bad foods. I can't have that because I'll eat, I'll eat that. Well, perhaps that's why because you tell yourself it's bad and it's you being overly restrictive on it i i agree however i i have a lot of fat loss clients like i'm sure you do as well i this you can't it's very easy just for us to sit here as or anyone just to sit there and say right you need to go and practice giving yourself unconditional permission to eat especially somebody that has like come with like 20 years of dieting history really restrictive in their mindset right I can't have donuts in the house okay I want you to go and buy donuts they've come to me because I want they want fat loss and I'm the coach they've chosen to work with because of xyz values empathy understanding you know like proven results blah 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 Uh, not a sales pitch but and then you're like right this is why you've come to me and I'm going to um, tell you to go out and buy donuts, which is your trigger food and sit there and eat all of them. That can be a very, very, very scary thought for somebody. Um, And practicing unconditional permission to eat can be very, very scary. And this is where the danger comes with people like ourselves, practitioners, that there is a lot of things involved with mentally with people that have histories of dieting and we have to be very very careful um i'm sure you and i have successfully taken people through this process of practicing unconditional permission to eat and they can are now at a point where they can just have half a bar of chocolate and put it back in the cupboard um but that doesn't do, mean do you, that that's do you mean half happen. a bar of little dairy milk do you mean no, like whole family no, no. <laughs> but like that doesn't mean that that's going to happen every single time they are around a family size bar of dairy milk, you know, and there are people sometimes in order to get them to even listen to or even think about practicing unconditional permission to eat. You can't have those foods in the house to start with. Like some people to start with on their journey for the first few months, they can't be around a donut. It's, it's easier for them to focus on those healthier nutritious foods and this is where it's really it's key and it's down to us as coaches um 
the first few months with me in my coaching journey with my clients, it's all about positive reinforcement. So it's all about the things they can have um, and they should be having more of. So fruits and vegetables, protein, fiber, variety, um, walking, sleep, water, like all these things. So there's no mention of like restriction or anything like that. Um, And then might introduce the concept of well, actually, you can have whatever you want whenever you want it. Isn't that quite freeing? Isn't that a wonderful framework to have? Oh, no, I can't. I can't do that. OK, well, how would that feel? What would that look like? Blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't think these are concepts that you can introduce and start practicing very early on from like day one of the coaching journey. It's not to say you can't reference them or men- mention them. And like it should, I think it's just got to be very carefully handled depending on the type of client you have mm. in front of you. I'm going to mostly agree with you mm. shock horror shock horror uh and i think the reason i say mostly is because i agree with all the premise of what you just said and i think actually the reason i agree with that is because i do think that's the coaching conundrum i think and this is a conversation that i had with johnny landles who we had on last week because i was obviously uh, speaking to him about the similar thing and i said the biggest issue for me is a coach that has a client that is coming to them for intentional weight loss will st- potentially or they do potentially struggle with the idea of they perhaps you have to put that goal on hold to fix something that as a coach we might see as a more prominent issue or priority and i do think the unconditional and this is where the only type slightly bit i do disagree in that when you said i can't i think you can but i think that's where the conundrum comes in because i can see why you're saying you can't because actually you know there's this risk that they lose all motivation they, they struggle to kind of get on board with the you know the buy-in almost because they're like you're telling me I need to do something else, but I didn't come to you for that. I'll come to you something different. And you're like, I know better though. And I need you to kind of get on board. And obviously that's the difficult part. Like they need to almost accept that there might be a period of time where they're not losing weight, AKA hitting their goal, you know, that goal of intentional weight loss um, while they fix their relationship. Yeah. Because that's the bit they need to do where the weight loss then might happen later down the line. But you need to do that bit first because while you're not yeah. doing that, you're basically sticking a plaster over what your problems are. Like, yes, if if you can get them to adhere to a calorie deficit for long enough, they'll lose some weight and they'll be happy as Larry. But the problem is if they don't, and obviously this isn't as binary as that won't work long term because perhaps there will be a period at once, like you said, you can start working on a different bit. Then you kind of get the benefits of being able to work on some relationship stuff and all fine and dandy. But for a lot of people, they might just then never really kind of see that real change in the longer term because they never fix the problem in the first place, which is mm. the relationships with their food and kind of their restrictive mindset and that type of stuff. And, that, and that's why I think it's the conundrum. It's kind of like, oh, it's really hard to tell a client to put your goal on hold while we fix stuff. Because inevitably, if you told someone, right, okay, yeah, you've got an intentional weight loss goal. What we're going to do is we're going to, we need to fix this first. We need to fix this relationship. And um, I think that'll get you in a better space to then be able to kind of pursue that goal. Yeah. But in the meantime, you're probably going to put on some weight or you certainly might not find it very easy to lose weight because you're probably going to overeat on foods that you've been telling yourself you can't eat. Like, um, I think Georgia, actually, Kolkov put out a post earlier about Nutella and a similar vein and, like, taking Nutella and just basically eat it for a fucking month because one of our clients said that she couldn't eat Nutella because um, it was a trigger food type thing again. It's kind of like, yeah, you're probably going to overeat Nutella and you'll probably eat a lot of it to start with, but after a while you'll be like, this isn't actually that special it's not that good actually and then all of a sudden Nutella can sit in the cupboard and you won't eat it all the time Mm. that's where the magic starts to happen but to get to that point is such a hard thing for a client to get on board with I think that again going back to that comment I made about that's the coaching conundrum I think Mm. the coach's conundrum but even then like I said I don't agree that suddenly by practicing this and if you have Nutella every single day for however long that you're not gonna have the same pull to it anymore I don't necessarily agree with that there are so many triggers that drive us to overeat you know it could be that yeah you practice unconditional permission to eat all the time and you know that you can just have a bit of Nutella on toast and that's fine you don't have to suddenly face plant the jar but then you have some kind of external trigger whether it's a shit night's sleep whether it's an argument with your boss your boyfriend um whatever xyz an emotion reaction maybe you're feeling lonely or sad or angry and whilst yes 
as coaches, we can talk about emotional eating. We can talk about compartmentalizing things. We can get them to practice mindful eating, hunger scales, like fullness cues, talk about internal, external drivers to eat. You know, I do something called like self self scan with your body, like just sit for like five minutes. Imagine you're in an airport scanner, go up and down, assess your hunger levels. Think about what you need. Are you hungry, bored, tired, stressed? That's probably not a good idea to eat. Like whilst... Yes, you can practice this and do this unconditional practice, unconditional permission to eat and really be in a really great place with it. It doesn't mean that that you're never going to respond to any of those external cues again. Um, And that's why I say it is about practicing it. And also. Knowing that. There are times when you will definitely want to overeat in, in in social occasions, for example, and you will eat past the point of fullness and you will eat till, yeah, you maybe do feel really uncomfortable and being okay with that as well. Um, like social occasions, for example, like if it's a social occasion and you are completely full, you're like, an eight or a nine on the hunger scale, but you've got all these external cues to eat. You've got peer pressure. It's your like absolute, as I call like A-list anniversary dinner. There's your favorite dessert on the menu, which is a hell yes. And you know, it's going to push you to a 10. You're still going to eat it, even though you can go back to that restaurant whenever you want and have that dessert whenever you want it, because you're an adult, you're still going to do it, even though it's probably not the best choice that's conducive to your goals at that point uh do you see what i mean yeah, yeah. it can be very I, I i i get exactly what you mean and i agree in that i think this is where it's you know, the fallacy of something like this is a perfect uh solution or treatment it's not it's not a body stretch like you say like someone can practice stuff and that doesn't mean there aren't going to be other reasons why people overeat I'm absolutely on board with that. I get that because even even from the uh, kind of physiological standpoint, from kind of food reward and kind of like the evolutionary type accepted beliefs that we're driven to eat certain like energy dense, high variety foods because from a survival perspective, they don't go away because you're suddenly you know oh I've, I've, I'm, I'm at one one with Nutella now and that I no longer see it as a as a trigger food or a bad food. <laughs> Love that. I'm yeah. at one with yeah. Nutella. Well, <laughs> Yeah, you know, no, no, no. But that, that's the thing. It's kind of like I've I've now accepted that there aren't bad foods that uh, is creating like a restricted mindset. Like they, you don't, you don't still then you don't lose the kind of almost the dopamine response, kind of this this learned response from saying these foods are good for survival. That doesn't just disappear. So I absolutely get on board. You still got the emotional side, the you know the psychological side of things like the reasons why you eat in terms of you know poor appetite regulation because of lack of sleep, as you mentioned, or if it's an emotional response from stress and other things or you know insert whatever and i actually also i think you did say this so i'm just repeating again what you just said i think but i actually also think that's okay sometimes and i think one of the key Mm. things which i think is all part of this journey for people is that i and certainly this is how like i I try and tell my clients that or we try and teach them i should say rather than tell them we try and teach them that it's okay to medicate with food at times as long as Mm. you are you have this kind of mindfulness and awareness as to why you're doing it so things, you know, you talk about some of the mindful techniques of things like uh, notice a name where you kind of like notice an action happens like um, you notice on the way home that you really want to take away and you would normally just order a takeaway and whatever you get home. But if you kind of are mindful enough to then try and write, I'm going to implement this, te- this um, technique of noticing it and realizing you're doing it and then naming why you're doing it. So you have a thought about, okay, well, why is this happening? Like, am I hungry? Do I want that? Is it the best option for me? Or is it just because I just had a stressful day and my boss has pissed me off at work and now I can't be asked to cook or go to the gym and I just want to go and get a takeaway and medicate the shit out of it? And you kind of think, well, actually, as soon as you notice that, for a lot of people, that drive and power to need that takeaway is gone. And certainly you find that that absolutely helps people manage things a lot better. And it's like, actually, I don't have this pull to do it now and I can just stop. But also practicing unconditional permission to eat means that if they do have that pull and they still choose to actually participate in that behavior they're actually okay with it Mm. like and and fundamentally to their core be okay with it like 
without the guilt and shame that comes afterwards that just be like I know I'm an adult I know I can eat whatever I want whenever I want it this isn't coming from a place of restriction this is coming from a place of emotional stress habit behavior do you know what today I'm all right with it and like that's what I like I think but it does take a while to get to that yeah oh I mean it is all part of that as I said journey it's all about the learning behaviors that people are or kind of have to work through themselves or work through with a coach to kind of get to that point where they're a bit better than they were last time they did it and like i said even the notice and name thing isn't again a perfect treatment and that everyone just stops because some people don't but going back to i guess piggybacking off the point i was making in that it's okay to do that time at times like medicating with even medicating with alcohol medicating with like food or doing whatever in certain times is okay as long as it isn't something that becomes your only option so if you're if your only solution or what's the word um if you're only yeah, let's say solution. If your only solution to a problem is that one thing, that's when the issue becomes because that's where, you know, you will continually emotionally overeat or you'll continue to do this. But it's okay to do that at times as long as you're kind of working on things. Perhaps have a range of things where like, okay, maybe going for a walk is another option. Perhaps distracting yourself with a film is another option or speaking to a friend is an option. You know, pick up the phone, having a call, doing whatever, playing a game. There's a, there should have a lot of different almost like options to treatment for this type of stuff. Sometimes the food is the right option. And I guess that trick is very much knowing the right option at the right time for the right individual. Um, and I think obviously I've rambled a lot there, I think, but it does kind of also brings me to a lot, lot of the times that I've said to a lot of people a lot of the time, often as a coach or someone working with people try and kind of help improve their life, what I, what they think about what they do is more important than what they do half the time. Like what you th- how someone feels about what they eat, is, and I've said this before on the podcast, is more important than most of the time than what they've actually ever eaten. Yeah. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree with that more. Um, but it it takes time and practice to get to that place. Um, but I, yeah, I could not agree with that more. Mm. Um, it, it's cool. I mean, I guess just to point out the obvious, if someone is taking 30 years to get to a point of eating where their habits, lifestyle, beliefs, behaviours, psychology, whatever you want to call it, is in a certain thing, you don't just undo that in a day, a week. A month even a year probably yeah you know that stuff takes is ingrained so much it takes you know almost a, people will often say and this isn't evidence-based at all but people say it takes as long as it does to, to um, undo as it did to do type thing mm. you're like well okay that might not be exactly accurate but i do believe that you know these things don't just unwind overnight so you kind of you they're always going to be a long-term like work in progress i think unconditional permission to eat has to come with um a lot of other um other methods of internal reflection as well like journaling works very well um because obviously you're trying to push as coaches we're trying to push people out of their comfort zone and we're trying to make them really uncomfortable because obviously that's the place where real growth happens and that's where you really change and you find out more about yourself but People, the people that link the way they look to their worth and genuinely believe that being in a smaller body means that they have more worth or they have more status in society or that they are actually um, more worthy of being loved or a better human. Like that is very, very difficult for us to undo as coaches, even though even though we don't want them to be there. They don't want to be there themselves. It's just very hard to do. So I think something like practicing unconditional permission to eat should come with some sort of journaling, some other kind of um, support network. Um, it's it's hard for one coach to take on on their own um, and just introduce this one concept and go, there you go, off you go, crack on now, you'll be fine. Like it- I, I don't I don't think you can suddenly become that. I am the unconditional permission to eat coach, and yeah. that's all you do. I I see it as it's a tool. It's yeah. it's I'll say it's yeah yeah. I think you can call it a tool. I don't know if it's a tool or not, but. You know, you could say it's 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 one tool out of a number of things that I guess a. I, I think it's almost a method, not a methodology, but it's like. Is it, it's it, another skill. It's, it's, I actually think it's a skill. It's a skill that someone has to practice. If you're getting someone to practice something, then sometimes they're going to be good at it, and sometimes they're going to be bad at it, depending on what's going on in their lives. It's just like. It's just like squatting. Sometimes my squat is atrocious because I'm stressed, I'm tired, I can't be asked, I'm not rested, I'm not fueled. Sometimes my squat looks like a thing of absolute perfection because... If you yeah, do say so yourself. Yeah, oh, it does. Ask Andy. Um, because 
I'm I feel really in control of my body. I'm feeling really well. I'm like I'm I'm slept. I feel really psyched for training. I'm motivated. I my I I'm not stressed. So my capacity bucket is rather empty that right now. So I can just deal with the my body can deal with it. So again, it's a skill. Again, with unconditional permission to eat. And like I say, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. Um depending on what's triggers going is going on it is i would i honestly would say it's a skill mm. yeah no it, I, yeah i think on the basis of just what how you described it it is a skill but i think it's obviously a principle and i think going back to intuitive eating um clinical relevance you know it's one of many those 10 principles and i guess all of those other things are things that you could take away and in an ideal world everyone would have those principles and skills I guess that's that's the point and half the reason that we work with individuals that have kind of quote unquote problems with their with their relationships and foods is because they don't have all of those skills or principles. So yeah, and it's it's hard and I think the danger with something like this is it's not regulated. And I don't think that every, you can't regulate everything in our industry and in nutrition. I mean, what, look at all the shit that gets pushed. What do, put what do you online. mean? What do you mean well, by the dangers of this? As in the dangers of coaches trying to implement this with people without doing the proper research. You know, you'll have people out there that will have you'll have coaches out there that will have seen it and gone. That's what I need to do with my clients. Do a watch a couple of YouTube videos and just start spouting it off. And I think that can be quite dangerous. It's that whole a little bit of knowledge and everyone's an expert kind of thing. And I think there it's that's what's hard in our industry is there is no framework really for this. Um unlike like intuitive eating, they've got you've got your 10 principles um and there are elements of intuitive eating that you can actually apply to to anything. But as a framework itself, intuitive eating must follow those 10 principles. Like so I just think it's quite um it's that whole a little bit of knowledge can be quite a dangerous thing. And I think that's the hard thing with this, with coaches that maybe choose to adopt it. Yeah, I mean, immediately coaches that are using it, but it's certainly like the intuitive eating side of it, there, there shouldn't be a diet mentality involved. They're like, intuitive eating is anti-diet. So immediately if someone's selling it as a weight loss cure type thing, well then it's completely taken out of context that it's been built for. So, and that that's not to say that I don't believe in like the eating intuitive type angle where a lot of people see that more as kind of just being mindful, can't relate to kind of someone with intentional weight loss goals, because I think it can. I think there's loads of hosts or a whole host of benefits for being mindful around how you eat and what you eat that can help with things like weight loss um, and food relationships, etc. But, you know, if you read the book, like you have to, I can't remember what exactly it is, but something like a rejected diet mentality mm. or something like that, like... um yeah that you can't say that actually if you're intentionally seeking weight loss then that you're following intuitive eating because you're not yeah it's not how it's built yeah but that doesn't yeah. mean you can't take your own view you know part of it and kind of use it and in a in a positive manner i suppose which is i guess i feel a little bit like that i do with clients yeah and there are plenty of intuitive eating points in that framework that are key and actually really beneficial to people that have fat loss goals mm. you know so it's like there is still parts of diet culture that I 100% reject and I would encourage my fat loss clients to reject, do you know what I mean, while still pursuing a fat loss goal. So like it's like burning calories, earning your food, like any of that kind of shit. You don't have to buy into any of that at all. Like there are scientific principles of fat loss that you need to adhere to if you want to lose body weight, but you definitely don't have to burn your calories off and punish yourself through ex the idea being that exercise is a punishment or that you need to earn those calories back in that food is a reward food can be very rewarding but food is not a reward for exercise so do you see what i mean mm. yeah no i totally agree i totally agree i, I guess uh, the thing with diet culture as well is obviously it it constantly changes i know obviously when i say constantly changes obviously it's not like it changes week to week necessarily but or even the premise of what a, that a diet culture exists but I guess what was, you know, to talk about body image or body acceptance and stuff, what was an acceptable body in cultural standards 30 years ago is not the same as it is now. Mm. You know, it's not even the same now as it was even 10 years ago. Mm. So I guess, like, that's actually a really good uh, point around anyone that has kind of, <clears throat> I guess, quote-unquote body image type issues is even kind of reframing it 
that point can really be really helpful for people i think in that you know you, what you view as your acceptable body could be influenced and based on what you've been kind of exposed to over a number of years but actually the fact that it changes so much should show you or help you kind of put in some context that why do i feel this way or like what is an acceptable body then or what what you know because mm. i guess it's kind of like if you were looking in the 80s and 90s you'd have to be like kate moss thin type thing that was the acceptable cultural kind of like body image now it's like i don't know i guess i don't even know what it is nowadays to be honest like, i think it's just more inclusive in that everybody might, i don't think there is i think we're really finally getting towards a place where it is yeah but is that more, is that your is, no is that your I, that might be my chamber. chamber is that yeah. your the what you're, you're exposing to and how yours are you, i guess making sure that your own beliefs values and cultures align yeah. with i guess it's a bit more i would imagine it's probably a bit more like your gym shark fitness type stuff now like it's less less Kate Moss really like basically his thin thin waif type thing, and a bit, I don't know if that's his acceptable language. This is, but I don't care. Um, I'm gonna be next Joe Rogan getting shot down off my D platform now. Um, yeah, I guess it's probably I would imagine it's more like fit pro type, you know, like abs or like women are big butts and big boobs, like six pack abs, you know, the types of. I don't know if it is. I don't even know if it's six pack abs anymore. Like you look at your generic well maybe not six pack like, abs with women but obviously like you know abs or like a fit like a, i don't know like a fitness model let's just type. say a stronger physique like yeah it's a, yeah. that maybe implies a certain level of yeah. strength which might which which in some aspects you've I, I, well perhaps that's a good thing because obviously yeah. promoting strength is a good thing i would imagine mm. but i guess it's when this case of like strength but still low body fat levels and still like unachievable um physiques for a lot of people mm. i mean i don't even know i think the rules you grow up with around what body you deem desirable or worthy, worthy, let's say. I mean, my, I've just had my mum to say, and we were talking about this as well and talking very openly. And I said to her, I was like, you know, like you have to accept mum that the way you brought me up and the, the way you focus so much on fat loss massively impacted me like growing up as a, as a young girl. And she was like, of course. And I'm really sorry about that. And she didn't break know. down and cry. Did she? Didn't no, oh, no. Sorry, oh, you've not met Jane. Have you Brett? Oh no. Not, she's not... hard as nails. All right, good. Good. <laughs> uh, should have got her on um she no but like you you know she had to accept that she had to accept that that impacted me growing up and it's the same with it's the same now with our children um so it would be the same with your girls and mm. it's Do we one no no i don't want to cut you off from your point I, no but... i was just saying that like, we have to accept that we are a product of our our experiences growing up how the media like what we surrounded ourselves with it's why i get so pissed off nowadays at like things like the daily mail and yeah i'm naming them like the way they promote they still promote the very archaic image of that slimmer is better and juices and pills and all this kind of stuff and the way they talk about women and it's just horrendous it's absolutely horrendous like you think you're so far past we i think again probably because of my own echo chamber and i have some wonderful people that i follow online like we're getting to the point where we are almost coming close to fighting all this and it's it's not you have still have institutions like that they're allowed to to say and do things and talk about women and you know project this image of the ideal that is so far past what we actually know to be true mm. i was the point i was gonna make is uh obviously i've been very aware and obviously having kids myself i'm just uber conscious about the exposures my children get around things like food obviously mm. the nutrition body image stuff like that where i'm so conscious about use trying to use the right what i consider the right language and even like, i was going to bring up the um obviously the disney film Encanto, which everyone fucking loves <sighs> i haven't Maybe, seen it yet i've seen it ninety six thousand times in bits <laughs> um i do love all the songs though like every, everyone's talking about bruno when you shouldn't be talking about bruno that, that'd be a reference if you haven't seen it you don't get but <laughs> sounds like something I'm going to have to watch this week when it, I have an empty flat. It, it, it is it is fantastic to be fair. Um, however, move over that because Sing Two is better. But anyway, um, there's a character. There's two characters. There's two sisters in there. Isabella and Louisa. And Isabella is like the uber perfect, beautiful princess. And her superpowers is creating flowers everywhere, like beautiful, perfect flowers, right? And her sister is called Louisa, and she's like super strong like hench like and i think i read someone i don't know how true this is or whether it's just one of these facebook shit that get that's shared around is not actually true but that the voice actors fought really hard for disney to make her massive like the rock tar massive like big muscles 
because obviously they wanted her to be like a strong, like almost not masculine because she isn't masculine, but I can't think of the right word. But basically, like obviously a bit out of context character, like Disney character. They didn't want it to be the normal norm where all princesses kind of suit this kind of princess narrative type thing. Because obviously not princess, but you know, like a lead female character. And um, I. I said to someone, like, who's your favourite? And she went, Isabella, because she's so pretty. And I was like, fuck's sake, honestly. <laughs> uh, but I keep telling her about, yeah, but Louise is so cool. She's so strong and blah, blah, blah. And, like, I just keep trying to push it into her. That is other values that people should, you should consider. Because I'm so conscious from a young age. It's so easy to fall into the Barbie girl type trap of just yeah. that's what you idealise. And she is very girly, my daughter, um, in that. She loves, all, like, like a lot of girls, I suppose, like unicorns. Everything's pink, fucking nails makeup already like she, this weekend she was sitting there doing like makeup at home and stuff and i'm like bloody hell um but I'd, I'd i'd love to get her sorry to jiu-jitsu and just do stuff like that and obviously instead mum taking her to bloody ballet tap and like cheerleading and stuff that doesn't have any like she's still gonna grow up knowing exactly who she is what she wants i'm to sure do, she i'm sure she know, will yeah like... no I'm, I'm, that isn't her, like a, oh, i'm worried about her growing up oh my god yeah, that's just a more like i would love to kind of still other values in that as well and give her the choice basically let her to try and think like okay what does she enjoy what she doesn't so but i suppose the point of all of that and obviously along with the story about Encanto, but um just really conscious about trying to promote stuff that i see is less i guess shallow and kind of has some kind of more depth to to her to help her grow up and mould her in a what I see is kind of I don't know, hopefully have a better influence on society and leave a, a better I don't know what I'm trying to say but yeah you know what I mean yeah yeah and that that will come though that will come um, yeah I'm sure you practice unconditional permission to eat with her though I'm sure she can eat whatever uh, she wants whenever she wants to she, or she, can she not she she. That's it. I mean, I guess I've thought loads of times I'd love to get a paediatrician on and talk around more around child nutrition. And I guess, like, I, I went to a, a conference, um, a conference that should not be named, um, <laughs> where they had a, uh, a I, can't, I can't remember what the actual title of the conference the whole day was, something like Health at Every Age or something. Cause it was basically about different age stages for people's nutrition obviously there was mm. a talk around pediatrician and um like child's nutrition and stuff and i found it really interesting and a lot of it is focuses clearly around the the kind of the psychological aspect of child nutrition rather than our oh, children should be eating tuna and eating whatever you know whatever because to be honest for most kids it's whatever they'll eat almost to a certain extent it's kind of like mm. look, if you get them to eat something that's a good place to start um Obviously, as much variety and kind of general nutrition principles as you would probably expect are good, but I think a lot of it is about not putting pressure on a parent in thinking a child has to eat a certain way. And I've definitely taken that on board with my children that I don't force them to eat certain stuff. I, I purposely try not to have a restrictive mindset for all the reasons we've spoke about for the last hour because I don't want them to grow up with those issues. Yeah. But clearly, like every parent, there are some boundaries they have to have. Like, I won't, I, I like, if they want sweets in the morning, like, yes, there's times they eat sweets in the morning. There's times they eat stuff where they shouldn't eat certain foods at certain times, which you would say on the face of it are bad habits. But I guess my point is I try to not make them habits and I try to encourage them to say, okay, well, how about we don't have sweets now and we have an apple and perhaps we'll have some sweets later. And I'll just try to have a non-restricted mindset, but with some kind of healthier guidance. I don't know if I, I don't know how else to describe it. No, of course. Like there are general principles of health, whether you're talking about kids or adults, you know, but obviously there is a pull to that sweet stuff because that's how, mm. you know, it's, it's always going to be desirable because it tastes fucking great. Yeah. And that doesn't matter whether you're a kid or an adult. So, well, you know, it, if, if like my child wants just crisp for dinner, most of the time I'm going to say, no, we're nah. going to probably have something a bit healthier. And I'll always try and like think and say, look, why don't we have something like this? Because obviously this makes you strong or this, you know, makes you healthy and blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I was, again, I'm really conscious around using the words of this is a bad food. Mm. Like, oh, you shouldn't eat them. They're bad food. And if I ever do that, I'd be, oh, shouldn't eat those sweets. They're really bad for your teeth. They are. Your mm. dentist is not going to be happy with you. Obviously, they might rot your teeth away. You don't want that. Mm. But I'll never say, won't eat that because I make you fat. Yeah. Never. Yeah, yeah. Never, 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 never. And I've had to call out, like, grandparents to use yeah. language like that because i'm like no i really don't want you to say that around my children because i think mm. it can have an effect in the same way as you spoke about your mum and i know the same about my mum and my sister um very similar kind of like premise or context i think where it just affects people growing up and yeah. you really really have to kind of make sure that yeah you know, it's a tough one it is so generational and like i'm yeah even like thinking about um 
I was in Aldi yesterday with my mum and I they had some almond butter. So Meridian have done two special almond butters. One was banoffee pie flavour and one was toffee apple flavour and they were on the middle aisle of Aldi. And I was like, oh, mum, pick both them up. They're coming straight home with me. And there's a lady next to me and she just went, oh, be careful of your waistline, darling. And I'm so passive aggressive and well probably just aggressive and defensive I just turned around and went why <laughs> because I'm like why does it matter like it but it's it is very much generational and mm. I hope that on this this practice of unconditional permission to meet and the, to eat and the way we talk about food and the way we actually pitch stronger healthier women like in Disney movies and like and we eradicating the word fat as a negative you know, as having negative connotations. I really hope that this is the message that we leave with our children and that we do take forward. And I hope that that's the message that our generation, maybe our kids' generation, do spread in terms of, I don't use wanky air quotes, I don't know if it's in the right context, but like our diet culture message. I hope that that is our message. Love it. <laughs> um, to wrap up there. Yeah, I need to have a shower. Fabulous. Oh, have you not had your weekend shower yet? No, I haven't had my weekend shower yet. For anyone listening, she only showers weekends, despite working (laughs) in the gym for like five days a week. And then I just save my shower for a Sunday. God, could you imagine? That'd be minging. That would be quite rough, yeah. There Um, are some people in the gym that smell like they do that, though, to be fair. Yeah, well, um, you're talking to someone that rolls around in sweaty pyjamas for people like seven times a week. So, and there's, I don't know why this is, but... um, and I love talking about jiu-jitsu. You'd never know it. But um, <laughs> that was satire, in case you know I was wondering. Uh, there's something about uh, weed and jiu-jitsu people that go together. I don't know why. Weed? Like, yeah. Like, jiu-jitsu, most jiu-jitsu people seem to be stoners. I don't really know Brett, where that comes honestly, from. Honestly, I'm not joking. Nowadays, everyone seems to be a stoner. Well, I yeah, smell that. that shit everywhere. Yeah. But it's obviously when you're rolling with people, you think, oh, come on, mate. It's all in yeah. your hair and everywhere. Oh, good. The amount of times we walk somewhere and I'm like, someone's having a lovely time at 11 o'clock in the morning, yeah. aren't they? Well, I, I mean, I guess perhaps it's just far more socially acceptable, which just means people have less inhibitions around trying to hide it or whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, there we go. Thank you very much. Fabulous, darling. Very much enjoyed it. I was really stuff. good. I was very good. Yes, even if we do say so ourselves. <laughs> we should sack off that Johnny. <laughs> yeah, we should. we should. Oh, don't say that, poor bastard. <laughs> Hope you're okay, Johnny. Yeah. Um, yeah, he could be dying of COVID for all you know. Dying's a bit harsh. Well, is if he does die. He won't die. Well, I don't think he'll die, but who knows? If, if he does not, I feel really bad. Will you, though? No. No, because I'll be honest, I don't, don't think the power of your words would have meant that he died. Yeah, but I do have some kind of moral compass. I feel bad. Well, just console yourself that. Not console yourself. Yeah, console yourself. No, no, that's all right. Basically, just reassure yourself, perhaps, that your words didn't mean he 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 was dead or he okay, died. True. So yeah. don't feel too bad about it. Yes, obviously, okay. grieve for poor Johnny. <laughs> like, I'll grieve for poor Johnny. But, Johnny's yeah. going to listen to this tomorrow. He won't. He won't. Listen. No, he, he absolutely won't. To the podcast, absolutely but he's going to no be chance. like, these two are just talking about my death. Could be worse. Could be talking about his dick. Anyway, right. On that note, bonjour. Adios. Thank you for listening to the NNN podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please help us by rating on your podcast provider, sharing with your networks so we can get our content out to more people. See you next week.